0: The focus of our teachings, the sermons, the messages on Sunday for the last couple of weeks and for the next several months, our focus is on the book of Acts. The book of Acts is remarkable. It's huge. Um, It takes up more than an eighth of the entire New Testament. And as much as any book in the Bible, the book of Acts sketches for us the difficulties of living as Christians in a world enslaved to the gods of money, sex, and power. Over and over on the pages of Acts, you find these people who are saying with their words and their lives that Jesus is the God, He is the King, He is the Lord, and this continually brings them into complicated, confusing, painful encounters with a society that's enslaved to an entirely different agenda, that's enslaved to other gods, the gods of money, sex, and power. Now, the reason we're in the book of Acts for the last several weeks and for the months ahead is because I think... If there's ever been a moment where the winds of politics and power and money are disorienting and confusing, if there's ever been such a moment in our lifetime, now is a great time for us to go through the book of Acts and to say, what does it look like to live faithfully in a culture that's gone absolutely crazy, in a political environment that threatens the very best of humanity. How, how do we live this out in our complicated, confusing, and disorienting day and age? Now, I encourage you to follow along with our church in your own private readings, in your small groups. Let's, as a church, in the months ahead, sit with the book of Acts. Now, you can do this in lots of ways. Um, in your small groups, you can go through the books. Um, in your own private time alone where I would encourage you to get a Bible and to read Scripture, a, a really good thing to do is to take a book like Acts and to read the thing in its whole. You know, when it was originally written, it didn't have all these numbers and chapters and stuff. It's meant to be sensed as an entire drama. Now, if, if you can't Carve out enough time to read all 28 chapters. Another thing you could do is you could just divide it by its parts. And there are basically two parts to the book of Acts. The first part is chapters 1 to 12. Um, And it climaxes with Christianity clashing with the leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel, Herod, resisting that, standing against God. And as a result, meets a very tragic demise. The second half of the book, chapter 13, through the end of the book, chapter 28, is about Christianity picking a fight with Rome, and it ends, if you've read the first half of the book, not many years away from Nero's own tragic demise, the point being, don't mess with God. Now, if you can't do that, if you can't find time to read it in its two big chunks, then just take a chapter a day. I mean, there's 28 chapters, so basically in a month, work your way through the book. This morning, though, we're going to take just a small piece of the introduction. We've, we, we're taking our time as we go through the first chapter because, like many dramas, like many books, like many stories, the introduction lays out the really important themes. So we've been going really slow through chapter one, but in a couple of weeks, We're going to pick up our pace and we're going to begin to take entire chapters and sometimes several chapters at a time. This morning we've heard a part of the book of Acts that the church historically has called the Ascension. It's verses 9 through 14. Now, in verses 9 through 14, we encounter two critical themes. For the book of Acts. Two very important issues. Two issues that it is almost impossible to overstate how important they are, not only to the drama of Acts, but to us as we seek to live out lives of faithfulness and justice and beauty and wisdom in a culture that seems dead set against those things. Two themes. It's almost impossible to overstate their importance, and yet... We face a major problem as Americans when we read these verses and sit with these two themes. You see, for several generations, the modern church, followers of Jesus here in the West, we have been telling a story about the world that confuses us when we read these verses, when we think about these themes. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to take these two foundational issues that come up in verses 9 through 14, foundational for the book, foundational for our lives. I'm going to take them and I'm going to spend the bulk of the sermon trying to get us to hear them in their original context. To hear them the way the, peop- the man who wrote this book meant them And the people who originally received this book would have interpreted them. And then, toward the end, I'm going to try to stand in front of that understanding and and push it into our lives here on the eve of a presidential election. So let's start with the first of the twin themes. It's the issue of heaven. Did you notice this word heaven came up four times when Bob read the passage to us? Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Now, look, Luke is a great author, but here he borders on inelegance and tactlessness. I mean, when you read it that way, you're, you feel like you're reading something written by, no offense, third graders, but by a third grader. Like, he just keeps saying this word over, and okay, we get it already. It's, it's redundant to the point of a woodedness. Now, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, if you read the rest of Acts, He is not an amateur. He's not a third grader. He is absolutely in control of his literary craft. So why suddenly do we get this inelegance? Because we need to stop right there and say, oh, maybe heaven matters. Maybe heaven's important. Maybe I should stop for a minute and wrap my mind around this issue of heaven. Now, the problem is we face... A confusion at this point. First of all, our culture is so steeped in Greek thought, not Jewish thought. Luke was writing this out of the milieu of a Jewish frame of reference, he was writing it to a group of people for whom he, d- he depended, they have a Jewish frame of reference. But here we are, 2,300 years after Hellenism, after the spread of the, Gre- the Greek way of not only talking, but thinking. And not only thinking, but imagining. And at the end of the day, the Greeks imagined heaven fundamentally different than the Jews. And so here we are with Greek imaginations, whether you've ever read Greek literature or not. You know, whoever discovered water, it wasn't a fish. Whoever discovered Greek culture, it wasn't the Greeks. We live in the middle of a Greek culture, of a Greek influence culture. And the way the Greeks imagined heaven was this. It's different than earth. It's a different place. It's a different type of place. It's different. It's a long way from here. And so because of the dominance of Greek forms of thinking, when people in the West today, when, when a religion, including Christianity, or really any religion, when a religion uses the notion of heaven, it gets co-opted into our Greek categories. It gets co-opted into the way that for 2,300 years, the West has conceived of reality. You see, what's happened is that our culture has programmed us to think that religion, Christianity in this case, has this view of reality in which earth and heaven are different. And and they're not only different, but I'm going to use a really technical term for just a minute. They are fundamentally ontologically different. Now what that means Whether you've ever used the word ontology or not, the point is that here in the West, heaven is a different place, in a different location, and a different kind of place. Let me come at this in a less technical way. Let me try to use an orange to help us wrap our minds around this. In the Bible, heaven and earth are not Two different places. They are two different aspects of the same place. They're not so much like two halves of an orange, identical but occupying different space. They're more like the weight of an object and the meaning of an object. They're more like the fabric that a flag is made out of and its symbolic meaning. The Jewish people of the Old Testament and the Christians of the New Testament, when they spoke about heaven and earth, they weren't talking about two different places. Heaven up there, earth down here. They weren't talking about some place that I'll fly to when I die. Some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away. That whole way of thinking about heaven and earth came into our hymns in the early 18th century. But when you read hymns in the late 18th century, when you read hymns from the early 18th century, like Joy to the World, there's a fundamentally different imagination about the relationship of heaven and earth. The Jewish view of heaven and earth was these are not two different places. They are two different dimensions. Heaven and earth is not about geography. It's about aspect. It's about dimension. Overlapping dimensions. Interlocking dimensions. And what is heaven? Heaven is God's dimension. And earth, that's our dimension. In our dimension, we're very familiar with it. We study it. We analyze it. We see it. It's space and time and matter. So in the Bible, when the Bible talks about heaven and earth, now sometimes it uses the word heaven with the plural heavens. That's more like our word sky, firmament, the stuff up there. But when the Bible is talking about heaven and earth, most of the time, it's talking about the fact, the fact that many people and many cultures outside of the West still understand the fact that everything in our world has a di- another dimension that is simultaneously present. And even though you can't see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, or measure it, it's there. That this world is charged with a supra-material, supra-natural reality, not un- Natural and not immaterial, but a different kind of material. That everything in our world has another dimension, another sort of reality that's there. And so when we're reading about the ascension of Jesus, we've got to keep it firmly in our minds that heaven is not so, some far off place. Jesus didn't shoot off like a prime evil space katir or something. He's not some primitive space traveler. Second, that's the first thing. When this word heaven comes up over and over and over, you've got to get that into your mind. You've got to hold it in your mind. You've got to sit with that. You've got to allow that to begin to take over your imagination. The second thing you've got to do with heaven, and this is another way that we're really messed up here in the West, not only is heaven not another place, it's another dimension. But when you're reading about heaven in Acts and Jesus' ascension into heaven, it's critical to know that in the Jewish way of thinking, the way the author of this book and its original hearers would have thought, heaven is not only a, another dimension, get this, it is the control room for, he- for earth. It's the CEO's office for earth. It's the place from which earth is run. Now, that might strike your ears in a new way, but can you imagine growing up in a culture that for thousands of years has known that? I mean, can you imagine going outside of Western culture and encountering people who really do believe there's another dimension that has authority and power over this dimension? In Jesus' ascension, in other words... What we're seeing is his inauguration as president of the world. His enthronement as king. He's ascending the throne. That's what this meant. That's what anybody in that culture would have understood the meaning of this story to be. They would have immediately thought, oh, the Christians think Jesus runs the show. Oh, the Christians think that Jesus is in charge now. The ascension of Jesus is the triumphant victory procession of the victorious conqueror. Luke's account of Jesus' ascension here in Acts 1 is riffing off of a Roman view that when an emperor died, his soul ascended into The pantheon of gods. Even today, if you go to Rome, to the forum, you can see this relief carving of Titus on his death, his soul like some chicken or something figure ascending into heaven. That was their way of claiming that our emperor sits in the pantheon. So all other nations better get with it or you'll experience the business end of Pax Romana. So here are the Christians saying, no, 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 not Caesar. No, no, no. Here is God saying, oh, no, not money, sex, and power, but I am the king. Now, that's what it said to the Romans, to the Jews who were reading this, who grew up with one of the most important passages of the Bible to them, being the passage that was read to us from the book of Daniel. All over the literature of this time period are references to Daniel chapter 7. The promise that one like the son of man will ascend to the ancient of days and be given authority over all the nations. So any Jew reading this would have said, "Oh, it's happened. Oh, that's what it is." Any Roman reading this would say, "Oh, that's what you're claiming." Now, this way of thinking, this Jewish way of thinking, it's hard for us to imagine for a couple of reasons. First of all, and I think this is the hardest issue for us, this kind of talk too quickly leads into notions of theocracy. And if there's anything in our polarized world right now that is dangerous, it's talk of theocracy. See, what I've just claimed is that the God we worship owns and rules and runs this world and that's just one step from that into from saying my God is the king into saying if you don't get with my God if you don't get with the God that we worship we will impose our way on you I think one of the hardest things for Christians today when it comes to really dealing with the ascension is the danger of theocracy talking about God running the show. We start talking about God and governments, and we were birthed as a nation on the conviction that that is bad, that we have to separate God and government. Because if we don't, we go back to the Hundred Years' War. If we don't, we end up with the Salem Witch Trials. If we don't, we end up with the Spanish Inquisition, and a thousand other bad moments in our history. And we don't even have to go back in history. We just look around the world today, and whether it's medieval Catholic Europe several hundred years ago or modern-day Islamic fundamentalism, we know what it means for people to start talking about God in charge. Doesn't that lead people to believe that if someone disagrees with us, then we're going to smash you? If we elect a devout, deeply committed Christian who says that God's ways are authoritative to the White House, isn't that going to confuse politics in the public square? Doesn't that lead to some kind of theocratic move where if you don't believe in us, we're going to defeat you, we're going to blast you in the smithereens? And so we've been socialized into thinking, no, 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 no. If that's what having a God who's running the show it looks like, we don't want that. We don't want tyranny. But the point of the ascension is there is a theocracy. And the, the goodness or the badness of theocracy isn't due to theocracy. It's all in terms of the theos in theocracy, the God that's running the show. When you look at Jesus, at his mission, and you begin to say, okay, Jesus is claiming to be setting up a kingdom where he's the king, smacks of theocracy. And if you believe that God, whatever God there is, that he's this big bullying God who's out to squash you and make you fit into his preconceived ideas, then of course theocracy's unpleasant. But just suppose that Jesus is God. And read the Gospels and ask yourself, what kind of God is this? What kind of kingdom does he bring? I think that's the way you're supposed to read the Gospels. I think you're supposed to read the Gospels like the Gospels tell you to read them. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1 is the kingdom, the rule and reign, the the sovereign authority of the king is here, and it's me. And then what kind of rule does Jesus have? What does it look like when King Jesus comes into a city? You know what it looks like? It looks like a man with leprosy being healed. It looks like a woman who's got a disease that has not only alienated her from her her own body, but it's alienated her from her society. It looks like her being healed and reconciled not only to her body, but to her community. Who wouldn't want that kind of theocracy? I mean, if a theocracy is based on the theos, and if the theos we're talking about here is about justice and beauty and kindness and not smashing you, but respecting you, not demanding through sword point and horses and armies that you get with his program, but courting you and wooing you and dating you and, and, and begging you to give yourself to Love. And kindness and forgiveness. What if that's what the kingdom looks like? When we read the Gospels, what do we see? We see Jesus going around bringing goodness and kindness and gentleness. Whoever heard of a nation whose agenda in the world is gentleness? How does that work? Here's a person in the grip of dehumanizing habits... And they're set free. Read the Gospels and you see what it looks like when God is running the show. The kingdom of God coming on earth. It's not that nasty, hateful theocracy which will come and bully you and make you cringe and diminish you. It's a theocracy where the genuine, generous God comes to fill his creation with life and love and hope. And that's what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts is the story of a people who believe the means has to match the message. And so when they take the message of love and peace and joy and hope and kindness and and healing out into the world, not only do they give that message, but with their very lives. They embody that message in the way they go out into the world. Now, <coughs> let's stop there and let's back up. Remember I said there are two themes in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. Two themes that are critical to the book and to our life. The first is heaven. The second one, the second theme that we really need to recalibrate our imagination on is not only the concept of heaven, but it's the return of Jesus. Look at the end of verse 11. Acts chapter 1, the end of verse 11. The angels say, they're looking at Jesus, ascended Jesus, they're staring. You know, because disciples have been there before. They, when was the last time they saw Jesus get enveloped in a cloud? Has anybody read the Gospel of Luke? Any, the Mount of Transfiguration. So what are they standing there staring? What are they waiting on? Him to come back. Because that's what he did the last time. Right? The last time he was enveloped in the cloud, the cloud represents God's presence. You read the Bible as a novel. The cloud is the presence of God. It's not, it's not a chariot. It's not like a... They, they weren't dumb. They knew that a cloud can't be a means of tra- transportation. No. This cloud is the, the, the incredible presence of God. And so they're waiting. And the angels say, hey, 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 what are you doing? Why are you staring up there? He's going to come back the same way you saw him go. Now here we read that Jesus says, that the angels tell us, Jesus is coming back. This is a very important issue in the Bible. And fundamentalists go crazy with this and liberals get embarrassed of this. And so we've got this polarized world. Like, really? He's going to return? He's going to come back? I mean, stand up in physics at JMU and, and, and absolutely demand the return of Christ. You know, that's going to be a, a weird moment. Or, or go to some fundamentalist church and there's going to roll out all these charts, right, about this is going to happen and this is going to happen and then this thing is going to be weird and then a bunch of people are going to get scared and you're going to be left behind and all this kind of stuff. You see... We've got to ask, okay, if heaven is what we just talked about, that, that really changes the whole idea of the return of Christ. You see, if you buy into the notion of heaven as some far-off place, some different place, a better place, well, then the common route for some Christians to take in their thinking is that Jesus' return is to do what? To get us and to take us to the Casper Convention in the sky where life, life is better, right? See, if you think that heaven is the goal, if it's a place, and if it's better, then the purpose of the return of Christ, you kind of co-opt the passage into saying, oh, he's going to return and get us and take us there. But what if heaven is not a far-off, disparate place, different place? What if it's here, a part, another dimension here? Another? What if the whole goal of the Bible is the reunion of heaven and earth? And that's where the Bible ends. The last scene of the Bible is heaven coming to earth. Not the the, um, righteous people flying off into heaven. The The whole dramatic movement of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, it ends with heaven coming down to earth. What if the return of Christ isn't to take us off to a better place, but what if it's to finish his work of making this place what it was always intended to be? And that's what the Bible shows us. If the, it's this overarching point of the Bible, if it's to get to heaven, then you read passages like this, and you think that, oh, one day, Jesus is going to come back and take me there. And if I die, I get to go there then, but if I don't die before he returns, that, and then there's all these elaborate theories for how that works out. But this whole way of construing it is a distortion. You see once we understand what we've been talking about at Incarnation since Easter, once we understand that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose as the beginning of the new world that God always intended to make, that this world, our world, so full of corruption and decay with all its violence and sorrow and sin and death, that the one and only true God, the creator of this world, he loves this world so much, That he took himself, he took onto himself flesh. He took not only a body, but he took all of the corruption and all of the decay and all the violence and evil and betrayal and sorrow and agony. He took it into himself and he took death into himself and then he went to that place where it would do its worst to him. That's the crucifixion. But precisely because he did that, he has made a way through The sorrow and death and decay and suffering. He's made a way through it and he's left a way clear for the world to be renewed from top to bottom. Which is precisely what began to happen in Jesus' resurrected body. 2,000 years ago, something happened. And when you read the book of Acts, you see there's an entire different set of possibilities after the resurrection than there were before it. And you see what people look like who believe that. And you see how people act who say, you know what? The enlightenment wasn't the turning point of world history. The resurrection was. Now things are different. The resurrection was the true moment that light pierced the darkness. And now a door has been opened in the fabric of the cosmos and things are different. It's like I've been saying, on that resurrection morning, God's creative, gracious, merciful power, like a reverse nuclear bomb, this life-giving power, was unleashed. In the resurrection of Jesus, God has begun to fix the world by, first of all, fixing the material matter of Jesus' body. He's begun to fix the world so that the whole world can be fixed, filled with truth and beauty and goodness. And one day, Jesus will return. Now, if that is the plot of your imagination, if that's the narrative architecture of your imagination, why is Jesus returning? To complete the rescue and the renewal of the whole creation. And when Jesus returns, the resurrection that Jesus experienced will happen with all of creation. The resurrection of Jesus is the prototype of the whole world being renewed from top to bottom. So if I'd read the whole passage in Luke's gospel that was marked in our worship guides, you would have seen him showing up into a room with a physical body that they see and feel and that they touch. He eats, but then he can like walk through walls. He's not non-physical. He's not less than physical. It's a new kind of physicality. This is what C.S. Lewis is trying to capture in his novels, The Chronicles of Narnia. Look, if you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around this, read the children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, because that is where Lewis is mapping this on our imaginations. And you get to the end, and what does he say? The blues are bluer, and the greens are greener, and we run farther up and farther in, and we can swim with dolphins and run with cheetahs. This is what the Bible is getting at when it says a lion will lay down with a lamb. It's an entirely new kind of lived, embodied, physical reality. That's what Jesus will do when he returns. Now, look, there are three promises in Acts chapter 1. He promises to pour out his spirit, which he does in Acts chapter 2. He promises that this band of ragtag, motley, ragamuffin, confused and muddled nincompoops, that they're going to become witnesses to the end of the Roman Empire. And by the end of Acts, they do. And the third promise is that he will return. It will happen. He keeps his promises. And we've got to... And look, this, okay? So what I've just mapped out. Heaven and the return of Christ. This is what all of Acts is driven by. And what do they do next? What is the next thing that these people do after this notion of heaven, this notion of his return? Look in verse 14. And all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Now look, if you walk into verse 14 with your imagination filled by a Jewish view of heaven, by a Christian view of heaven, if you walk into it convinced not only that heaven is overlapping and interlocking, but it's also the control room, and Jesus sits in the control room, then prayer is not a game. It is a kingdom work. And so in this book that is filled with the concrete reality of what it looks like to move into a real world with real jobs and real families falling apart and real gods of money, sex, and power with real teeth who are ravaging you, prayer is not an escape. It is a battle. It is us In the earthly dimension, drawing down on the heavenly dimension. It's when we pray, we are gazing into heaven. We're standing at the threshold of heaven and earth. We're standing between the love of God and his world that is broken. (coughs) If you really believe in this vision of reality, you will pray. Not some deistic prayer. Not some little, okay, God, will you do this and then you move on? No, notice what it says. They persevered in prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. My favorite translation, tenacious prayer. Which makes me think of Tenacious D and Jack Black and then I get all confused. Tenacious prayer. Serious prayer. Now, what are they doing? They're praying for God to send a Spirit. Now, Jesus promised them back in verses 6, 7, and 8, he was going to send a spirit. And here you find them praying for God to do that for 10 days. Steadfastly, tenaciously persevering. You know what? This challenges Presbyterians. Because nowhere in your prayer are you going to find, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, so let's get on. Now th- these people are praying like Pentecostals. They actually believe God acts differently when they pray. You know, I, I think, look. C.S. Lewis, I love C.S. Lewis, so anytime I can find something I disagree with the moment, I feel better about myself, that I'm not just a limbing, okay? C.S. Lewis said, we pray because it changes us. To which a guy named Carl Barth said, nine, no, 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 no. The fundamental reason we pray is because it changes God. Because God acts differently. Prayer is the most fundamental avenue for working in the real world. And so more than 30 times in the book of Acts, Luke comments on their prayer life. More than 30 times. And at all the key moments, they're at prayer. When they can't figure out where to go next, they're at prayer. When God has promised something that he hasn't done yet, they're at prayer. When they're scared to death, they're at prayer. When they're confused about vocation, they're at prayer. Now, we're going to come back in the weeks ahead to say it's not just prayer. See, The book of Acts not only says get up off your feet and get on your knees, it also says get up off your knees and get out in the world and live real concrete life. But we've got to start here with prayer. And prayer takes on an entirely different view if you believe heaven and earth are overlapping and interlocking and that Jesus sits in the throne room and he's saying to you and me, the workers... Hey, I want you to partner with me in this. And the way we're going to partner together is you get out there and take real responsibility for this world and do something about it and, and bring me into that with you through your prayer life. And if you'll do that, I'll get involved. I'll do things. At the end of the day, we pray because this is a key way that the sovereign, saving, healing justice-bringing, hope-fulfilling, reign of God in and through Jesus comes on earth as in heaven. We pray because prayer is a key way the kingdom moves forward. We pray because God will act differently if we don't. Prayer and vocation. These are the two key ways we do the work of God's kingdom. Church of the Incarnation. We've got to be tenacious. The book of Acts is about the kingdom of God coming on earth as in heaven. And a primary way that happens is through people who really believe that heaven and earth are related in this way when they pray. Church of the Incarnation, let's be tenacious. In just a minute, we're going to stand up like the priests that we are. Pray. Work up the courage. Go for it. You know how the jail situation in Harrisonburg is going to get dealt with? You want to see God's kingdom come into our catastrophic jail situation? Pray. And later on, we're going to see you got to get out there and put your hands to work too. But you can't do one without the other, the secret power. God gets involved through our prayers. What are we going to do about our growing refugee population and especially with the post-traumatic stress that's going on with so many of these? Pray. How are we going to live in this world of money, sex, and power gods? How are we going to survive it? How are we going to figure it out? How's the kingdom of God going to move forward? Church of the Incarnation, Jesus is the king. He's in the throne room. And he invites us to labor with him for the kingdom to come on earth as as it is in heaven. So let's get out of our chairs and let's pray.